Let us recognize this morning that we do come before the thrice holy God. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Colossians chapter 3. This will connect with what we're going to talk about in our, in our message here. But Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 11. Where do you hear God's word? Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is God's word. Would you join with me in prayer? O Lord, our God, we do, we come before you and give thanks. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have allowed us to know you, that you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you that you have given us a body to belong to, both a larger global body of believers everywhere and a unique local body of Elk Point Baptist Church that we can gather in person with brothers and sisters, that we might honor and glorify you, that we might obey your word and we might preach your word, we might hear your word, we might pray together, we might worship together. And Lord, as we engage in all of those things this morning, we pray that you would continue to guide and direct our hearts and work upon us by your Spirit. Lord, you are most holy, thrice holy. And there is no situation in which we deserve of our own merit to come before you. So our God, we thank you that by your Son, we have been reconciled to you if we have confessed him as Lord and Savior. We thank you that we cannot come of our own merit, for we can only come in the merit of your Son, Jesus. May we rest and rely upon that merit, and may we live as ones who have been bought with a price. Lord, we do lift our congregation to you. We think of those who are ill or suffering with allergies or weakness. We think particularly of our sister Donna as she is mentally and physically and emotionally preparing for this surgery, this hip replacement. And Lord, we, we know that she's suffering from a cold right now and that would cause all manner of issue and rescheduling for the surgery. So Lord, we pray that in your will you would heal her. 
whether it's by a miracle of your own spirit's working or even working within Donna's body, we just ask that you would bring her back to full health, that she might be able to have the surgery that she's waited so long for, that she might experience relief and be able to move again as she has in the past. We pray for those in our midst and those who are away from us who are traveling. We ask that you would bear them safely to and from their destinations and that you would be with them wherever they are. And even where they are, that they might continue to glorify you. We thank you for the gorgeous sunshine and the changing of the seasons. We see the grass growing and the trees budding, and we glorify you for it is you who sustains this world. It is in you that this world exists. And each one of these small miracles is a miracle done by you, for you have caused it. We pray for those among us who depend on the land, our farmers and our ranchers, and we pray that you would be with them. We pray that the land would yield its crops as they have need and you would care for them in that way, that their animals would calve safely and that they would see in every step of this process you at work and you providing for and sustaining both your own creations in these animals and these plants that are growing and your sustaining work in their own lives by providing for them. Lord, we continue to pray for so many within our congregation who are grieving. We have lost much in these last months. And Lord, we continue to grieve with those who grieve. We continue to pray your comfort and your peace upon each one. And we thank you for the hope that you have given us in Christ Jesus. So Lord, as we come to spend time in your word and to hear the preaching of your word, we just ask that you would be glorified and lifted up and your word might be made clear to our hearts that we might understand it and grow from it and be exhorted and encouraged and go prepared to live for you. Lord, we thank you for these things and pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. So at this time, I would like to dismiss the children for Children's Church. That is ages 3 to kindergarten. If your children fall in that realm, you are welcome to go now. And while those children are on their way out, I would um, put two other things in your ear as far as announcements and the like goes. Um, I have heard and got confirmation that uh, Jerry DeBow does have a time and date for his service. Um, his service is going to be on June the 3rd at 2 p.m., and it's going to be on his family farm in St. Lina. And um, according to the family, as of this week, I will likely be doing the service out there, and I would welcome seeing some of Jerry's church family to to come out and worship as we can commit our dear brother into the hands of God as he has already been with his Savior for months now. And also I just want to, on a personal note, personal note give my, my thanks. 
Many of you will notice that Sherry is not here today. She is away at a wedding and has been since Thursday. And it was always a thought in our heads of, okay, if Sherry's gone on Sunday and Josh has four kids, is Josh going to just set up a little playpen around the pulpit here and just kind of let them do their thing behind him? But in relation to what we have been discussing in Ephesians and elsewhere, our church has shown great care and great concern for Sherry and I and for many of the families in our church, and I would encourage you to continue to do so. If you see a child melting down and you are close with a family, offer to continue to help them or encourage them or even just pop your head in on them after the service and um, encourage the parents. And it is of great encouragement to me to know that I can split my brood with the Urquharts and the Goulets and know that they are well cared for by family who love them almost as much as Sherry and I do. So my thanks to our church family and an encouragement to our church family to continue to care for those with young ones among us. So into Ephesians again. As we look at this and as I was thinking about this, I got thinking about the church as the body and our own human bodies. Think how our lungs breathe in and our lungs breathe out, how our heart contracts and relaxes. We sleep and we wake, and the human body is one of cycles, and each cycle a different side of the coin and each necessary for the continuation of the other. Whether it is all sleep and no waking, or all waking and no sleep, both are problematic in their own right. You need both sides of the coin. If you only breathe in and can't breathe out, or you only breathe out and can't breathe in, that is a problem. If your heart only beats one way, that is a problem. The body needs both sides of that coin. And our passage this morning introduces the beginning of kind of a scriptural two-sided coin in the body of Christ. It's something that Paul's been building for a while now, but in the first 16 verses of chapter 4, we get a great vantage from which to see both sides of this coin. That we as believers are created to be utterly united in the body of Christ utterly united with each other of one heart and mind. And yet, we are also created to be totally unique. All one and yet all distinct. This morning, we're going to look at the first six verses of chapter 4. And those six verses speak particularly of the unity to which we are called in Christ. And then, Lord willing, we will flip the coin for next week and look at the unique gifts that God has given to each. So that being said, I invite you to open to Ephesians chapter 4 and follow along with me for verses 1 through 6. 
I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is God's Word. Up until now, Paul has dealt with this on a wider scale. The Gentiles as a people are now one with the body of Christ, God's family, which until then had been restricted to the Jews. There is now one man in place of two, peace made possible by the reconciliation found in Christ through whom both Jew and Gentile have access to the Father and the Spirit. But what about the micro scale? We are good at thinking in big picture here, but what does that mean individually, one-on-one? We can think of our churches being woven together and connected with Churches across the world and all connected and all one, all united in the one purpose of the glorification of God and the propagation of the gospel. But what of the relationships between individuals? What of how we interact with one another? Are we one on a deeper level than simply just corporate unity? And I think Paul tries to make this point very clear and bring it right down to earth, have the rubber meet the road right off the hop here. He wants to demonstrate that this is more than just hypothetical to him. Very first phrase, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Comparable to the same thing he said in the last chapter, chapter 3-1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul is about to call these Ephesians to a radical, culture-transcending, self-sacrificing unity. And what better way to give a call like that than to demonstrate it? Here you have the man, Paul, a Jew, a former Pharisee, a Roman citizen, willing to go to prison for what reason and on behalf of whom? Because of his commitment to the gospel of Christ and on behalf of the Gentiles to which he has been sent. You want to show someone what it means to be one with the saints? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urges these Ephesian saints 
to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. And he has demonstrated this by his willingness to even be imprisoned for the sake of this calling. But that phrase, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, I wonder how often we consider our faith in this way. That ours is a calling that comes with a standard to uphold. That we should be worthy of our calling. I think that the periods of church history that have leaned too heavily towards unbiblical works-based righteousness, that I can earn my own salvation, I think that the time spent over there has now made us swing so far in the other direction that anything that smacks of works-based righteousness, anything that smacks of legalism, we immediately get uncomfortable. I don't want to think of having to be worthy of my calling, for my calling comes from God. And God has gifted us with faith. So why would I have to be worthy of my calling? To be worthy of my calling is to swing too far the other way, except that it's in the Bible. So what does it mean that we be worthy of the calling that we have been given? There's a reason that this verse back here made it up on the wall for the book of Ephesians. As we look at an upcoming book, there are oftentimes, especially in Paul's letters, a verse or two that really nail down some of the thesis of the letter. And this would definitely be one for the book of Ephesians. In this letter, Paul, in the first three chapters, builds this basis of orthodoxy, right belief. How do we believe and what do we believe about the gospel? But that orthodoxy is not only good for knowledge itself. It should lead into orthopraxy, right practice, how we live. So chapters 4 to 6 is where we, we get a lot of that. How then should we live in light of the gospel that has been revealed in Christ? In chapters 4 to 6, if we listen, we get a real sense of how we can truly walk in a manner worthy of the calling which comes from God himself. The first part of Paul's instruction to this effect, what it looks like to walk in such a way is that we would walk, that we would live with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. These characteristics, if we just read them on their own, they fit so incredibly well if we envision a Christ follower attempting to emulate the example of Christ. And I think it's very intentionally that the first of these that we are given is humility. In his book, Holiness, J.C. Ryle, and to some extent, like Paul in Ephesians, he's trying in his book to explain the nature and the hindrances and the difficulties of true Christian holiness. And he offers the, this practical guidance for pursuing a holy life. Then in chapter 10, he's talking about some of the difficulties, and he says of humility, 
The more humble a man is before God, the more he will be exalted. The more humble he is before men, the more he will get road roughshod. And that quote is particularly true and would have rung particularly true to the original audience hearing this letter. The concept of humility as a virtue in that culture was utterly foreign. To be humble was to be less than, to debase and humiliate oneself. Humility ultimately ended up as this wretched thing reserved for those who could not hope to attain to anything but. So when these original audiences hear that we are to be humble, that we are to walk with humility, that wouldn't have come off as a good thing. What do you mean with humility? But Christ repeatedly flipped this cultural coin. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The very beginning of the Beatitudes, Matthew 5.3. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, Matthew 11.29. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Luke 14.11. You take a look at Christ's reference to humility and humbleness, and you will get a page full. Christ establishes this utterly countercultural line of thinking that humility was a thing to be pursued, that humility was a good thing for the believer. And if you want clarity as to whether this was simply preaching or if this was walked out, take a look at Christ's life himself. Philippians 2, Paul gives probably the clearest example of this and gives the clearest example that this is not just something that Christ has done, but this is something to be followed. This is a pattern for his people. Philippians 2, starting in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The humility, which was so distasteful to the culture of the day, was to be a cornerstone of the church and the lives of individual believers. Why? Because it was key to the ministry of Christ. And as much as our culture today would pay, at least pay lip service to the idea of humility as a virtue, our culture has not changed that much. At most, our culture values a 
false humility that just downplays our own pride. Maybe the self-deprecating humility that is looking for a pat on the back and, oh no, you're, you're really amazing. But the humility that aligns with the calling of the saints is the kind of humility that really and truly seeks to love our neighbors as ourselves and even count others as more significant than ourselves. Humbling ourselves for the sake of our brothers and our sisters and our neighbors, just as Christ humbled himself unto death, that his people might be welcomed into the family of God. Such humility will necessarily manifest itself also in gentleness. If you're reading in different translations, you might also find it translated meekness. And this whole idea of gentleness and meekness has been misunderstood all over the place throughout Christendom. Alistair Begg, he comments on our misunderstanding of gentleness. He says, if we undervalue gentleness or meekness, it's likely because we misunderstand it. Perhaps we think of it as sort of a spinelessness or weakness, as if to be gentle or meek is to lie down and let others wipe their feet on us. But a better, more biblical way to think of gentleness is as strength under control. It's become kind of a wry joke in Christian circles of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. The Sunday school Jesus that we see in the children's Bible sitting with children on his lap, and that was certainly a side of Jesus. And he certainly displayed a meekness, a gentleness with children and with the woman at the well and with people who were in desperate need of this gentle touch. But Jesus was anything but spineless and weak. He was not a doormat to be stepped on. He was powerful. He healed the sick and raised the dead. He flipped tables in the temple and he told Peter after Peter drew his sword to defend Jesus and cut off a man's ear, do you not think that I can appeal to my father and he will at once send 12 legions of angels? That's 72,000 angels. Our Jesus was not spineless, nor was he weak, but he was gentle. He was meek. He could have defended himself. He was mocked on the cross. Well, why doesn't God save him? Why doesn't he come down himself? Why doesn't God send some angels to save him? He could have. And he could have wiped the earth of every single person involved in the plot to kill him. And yet he did not. Jesus was and is true God of true God. And he was the very definition of strength under control. For God's glory, Jesus humbled himself. He, for all of his strength and power, allowed himself to be arrested, tortured, mocked, and killed. He laid down his own life. And he made it very clear that he, as he did so, he is laying it down. Nobody's taking it from me. I lay down my life. He was meek and gentle. This is not one who is unable to defend and overpower. 
Instead, he has chosen humility and meekness as his M.O. and has determined that his people would also live accordingly. For us to live meekly is to not seek our own glory, seek our own fame, where we do not seek to dominate and impose our will, and instead to live quiet and intentional lives in accordance with the will of God. Just as Jesus didn't come as a conqueror as he was expected to come, the Jews expected warrior Messiah coming in and leading God's people to a massive earthly kingdom. And yet he came humble and meek and gentle as a servant. Jesus did not come as a conqueror and impose his will on all. And the church of Christ cannot seek to force our own will or our own belief, instead sharing it humbly and kindly and gently. And just a side note, Jesus did not come as a conqueror, but he will come as a conqueror. The gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is a part of who he is. But one day when Jesus comes again, he is not going to be coming with the same kind of gentleness. His power will still be well under control, but it will also be on full display. Jesus came gently and humbly that we might be able to have faith. God is being patient with his people that his people might come to know him. But when he comes again, that gentle glove comes off. But for us to live lives that are gentle, especially in the face of what we experience in day-to-day -day life, that requires copious amounts of patience. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness with patience. Patience can mean a lot of things, but here it particularly means to be long-suffering. This is not just kind of sitting back and tapping your feet at a red light or in the co-op lineup when someone in front of you has a million and one tiny items and then wants to buy lotto tickets at the end of all that and you're just kind of, okay, I got in the express lane thinking this would be quicker, but I'm going to be patient. I'm not going to jump to the other lineup. Patience here is long-suffering. Patience here doesn't avenge wrongs. It is will willing to endure even direct mistreatment. And if that sounds like a big ask, you need only look again at the example given us by Christ who is willing to patiently endure his own people's faithlessness, the stubborn hearts of the masses, a farce of a trial, torture, and even his own murder for our sake and for God's glory. The patience that is required to live as Christ lived is beyond my ability to understand. I take a look at Christ just so patiently trying to explain to his disciples. He sits there and he teaches them and he teaches them and he teaches them and then he gives this parable, and then his 
disciples look at him with this kind of clueless look on their face, be like, so what does that mean? And you could just see Jesus be like, okay, how do you not understand this yet? But he is patient with his people. Humility, patience, gentleness. If you're listening, this is probably starting to sound like those lists of the fruits of the Spirit, and rightly so. And you'll probably realize that there is, if there's going to be a short list of fruits of the Spirit, of patience and humility and gentleness, there's probably one that's going to get mentioned in there, and it is the big one, love. Paul has just finished praying in Ephesians chapter 3. Being rooted and grounded in love, may you have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. To open and enclose the, the love chapter in Corinthians 13, Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains and I have not love, I am nothing. And in verse 13 of that chapter, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. It truly is love that allows the church to hold together. We, from our myriad of backgrounds, are held together and we can bear with one another because we share a mutual love. And as lovable as all of you are, as I look around this congregation, you all are lovable, but the love that I'm supposed to have for you is not going to be just drummed up by how lovable you are. Because there will be moments where I look at you and just am absolutely in awe of how lovable you are. And there are going to be moments where I take a look and go, you drive me crazy. And each one of us have had moments with our brothers and sisters around this church in those moments. We are not held together with a love for one another that love for one another proceeds forth from our mutual love for Christ. We mutually are dedicated to this love of Christ, and Christ, by His Holy Spirit, grants us His love for His church. If you have the choice between me loving you just for who you are and me loving you for who Christ sees and who Christ has chosen in His Spirit, I hope that you would pick the latter. For the love that Christ has for his people is far beyond the love that I could have for any one of you or we could have for each other. We, if we are rooted in love, if we understand the depth of Christ's love for us, then how could we not bear with the fellow members of our church if we see that they are the very objects of the love that Christ has shown? And such knowledge should absolutely drive each of us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And this 
leads us to the pinnacle of our whole passage. This is what Paul is building to, what he is getting at. And these few verses, 4 through 6, likely would have been something that was an early church creed. It was something that people would know, and I would encourage us, if we have the willingness, and even if we don't have the willingness, I'm not too worried, take a look and memorize these few verses. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. All of the rest of our passage builds to this. Why is Paul a prisoner for the Lord? Why does he exhort these saints? Why have humility and gentleness and patience and love? And where does this unity come from? How can any of us hope to attain to the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because of the oneness that proceeds from the triune God who is one himself? We have all three members of the Godhead on display here really clearly. One Spirit. One Lord. Christ is Lord. This is the Son. And one God and Father of all. Trying to wrap our heads around the Trinity is a difficult thing. But in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, it says there are three subsistences. The Father, the Word, or Son, and the Holy Spirit of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, and yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him. And this one God, even when talking of creating mankind, says, let us make man in our own image. And thus we have the image of God imprinted upon us, and part of that entails our core desire and our need for community. The at once oneness and uniqueness found in the church finds its very basis in the triune God. And ultimately, every metaphor is going to break down, even the metaphors that we find in the Word for the Trinity. For there is none like God, and His Trinity, His triunity is beyond our finite mind's ability to fully comprehend but that imprint still persists on our whole and on our souls and communicated in the church. And besides the four member or the three members of the Godhead found here, there are four other ones found in this passage. One body, one faith, one hope, one baptism. And each of those proceeds from each other. Why is there one body? 
the church? Why are we united in this one all-encompassing glorious hope? Because of the gospel. Why do we have that hope? Because he has given us the gift of faith. Without the gift of faith, there is no true hope. Yeah, we can still blindly wish for things, but real, settled, convicted hope only proceeds from the gift of faith. And that gift of faith is in itself tied to this one baptism. Now, before we get off into debates about modes of baptism and water baptism and rebaptism and infant baptism and believer's baptism, this baptism, this one baptism, it transcends all of those and encompasses all of those. For when we think of baptism, we think of the tank up here and getting dunked in the water and all of that good stuff. That baptism is a symbol. It is an external event that shows an internal reality. This baptism that Paul's talking about here is the same one that he references in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, where he says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. When we are baptized physically, and there is plenty of argument out there as to exactly how that baptism should look, and it's good to have those debates, but before that, we are baptized internally. We have been washed clean and have ourselves come and been joined by the Spirit to the body of Christ. And all of this is directly dependent upon the one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Paul's purpose in this passage is to urge the saints to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. This passage... What we're looking at today is kind of the title passage for the rest of our book of Ephesians. How can we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called? How can we ever walk in such a way that we would be worthy of a call that we are by nature unworthy of? That's right, we are by definition unworthy of our calling, so then how can we be worthy of it? only if we are made worthy. We are made worthy. Recognize it says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. That actual worthiness comes only from Christ. We are made worthy. And then we walk in a manner that reflects that. But how can we maintain unity in the church, both the local church here, brothers and sisters that we see and know, and the global church, brothers and sisters spread around the world? We must recognize that our participation in this body of Christ to which we belong is utterly and completely dependent not on ourselves but upon Christ. And as such, each of us are equally unworthy of this calling. Every single one of us are equally unworthy of the calling that we are called to. And that every shred of true humility and gentleness and patience 
and love that is required of us cannot come from us, but from the God who has called us. There's a reason why they're called fruits of the Spirit, not fruits of us following the Spirit or anything like that. It is important that we recognize here that to walk in a manner worthy of the calling can only come from the one who has called us. And if we view one another and view ourselves rightly, that we are all equally needy of the Father equally needy of the gifts that he gives by the Spirit, equally needy of the saving work of Christ, if we view ourselves and we view each other in that way, then it is a whole lot easier to see how we might have unity, that we might engage with and recognize one another as brothers and sisters who are imperfect and in need of the same salvation work that we ourselves needed. So as we close, I will exhort you and myself with the same words that we've been looking at this morning. So brothers and sisters, saints of Elk Point Baptist Church, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And do so knowing that there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to that one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Oh God, we cannot even begin to imagine what it would look like if all of your people would truly walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And we ask that you would grant us the gift of your presence with us, that you would grant us humility and gentleness and patience and love for one another. That we would find this gift in you through your Holy Spirit. And that we would find ourselves knit together, maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And that we would not be found to be united and of one spirit and one mind and one person and one body. That we would not make that an end in itself. But that in all of that we would be joined with one another that we might glorify you. That we might work with one another in our own unique giftings as we will in your will discuss next week that we would use all of those things together as your body to bring you all glory. God, you are one. 
And we pray that you would make your church one. That we would be united in that love we have for your Son. United in the knowledge of the Gospel. And that we might pursue you and that we might be made worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Lord, we thank you. We commit this day to you and ask that you would go with us from here. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.